young Christians, little theologians. Uh, I want you guys to think this morning of the times where you've been included in something. Like if you've been invited to a birthday party or asked to come over and play video games um, to help with a project, how did that make you feel? And then on the flip side, you know, how did it make you feel when you weren't included in something, when you've been left out? Uh, I want you to, if you're going to hear the sermon this morning, to think about how God includes all kinds of people in his family uh, by bringing them together in the church and come up with the names of one or two people that you know and love that you wouldn't know. Uh, except for the fact that Jesus brought them into your life in the church. And then maybe ask your parents today to think about who are some people we can include in our lives that uh, aren't as included as we've been included in the church, and pray for them, and then uh, maybe invite them to church. So uh, as you go out, let me just pray for the kids. Lord, we're grateful for your heart for children. Uh, Jesus, how uh, you did not turn them away, but um, invited them to come uh, and honored them as full members of your kingdom, uh, such substantial members that we as adults have much to learn from their faith. Lord, would you grow that faith strong uh, this morning? Bless their teachers and their time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. I'm on the verge of 50, so these are a brand new little, little feature in my life here. Um, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, it's a, it's a real joy to be here. One of the, um, there are many things uh, about me that annoy my children. Um, one of them is when we go on vacation, I, I'm, I'm usually pretty insistent that we go to church on Sundays, um, you know, and they feel like, well, I'm on vacation. We don't want to do that. We take a break from that. But, but one of the, I think, real unique joys, and it's one I've already experienced here this morning, is showing up with a group of people you've never met and going, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we, we share a deep relation, and, um, you know, that's something we get to explore, and it's real. And so I'm really, I'm very grateful to be invited here. Uh, I, know, I know a good bit about your church because Justin, uh, despite his uh, loyalty to the Dodgers and the Lakers, is a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, and uh, he has been a huge encouragement in my life, and uh, in, in no small part, in fact, he's one of the reasons I'm uh, here in, in uh, New Mexico. It's one of the main reasons, and so I'm really thankful how the Lord has used him in my own life and calling, and it's, it's a real joy to be here together. Um, so as we begin, would you just, uh, can we just pray again? Uh, Lord, we, we prayed, or we sang a minute ago that you would speak, and man, what a great word for a preacher to be reminded uh, that, that you are the one who speaks. Uh, you've 
you, you've ordained this, this thing called preaching. Um, there's places in the Bible where it's called foolish, not because it's useless or something, but where you love to use the weakness of human beings like me to convey the power of the gospel to us and to remind us uh, that, Holy Spirit, your promise is sure, uh, that you give yourself fully to those who ask. And so we ask for the Spirit to come, uh, to dwell richly among us, and not only among us, but in us. Take this word, Lord, and apply it to our hearts. Plant it deeply within us that it would grow and bear much fruit. Lord, if there are hardened places, would you soften them? Where there is darkness, would you bring light? Lord, where there is coldness, uh, would you warm our hearts at the fire of the gospel this morning together? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, a lot of the pictures of me when I was a little kid, uh, almost all of them, I'm smiling. And uh, I imagine one of the reasons I'm smiling is the internet had yet to be invented. And... You know, and of course, we're in a day in which uh, there's no small amount of attention given, uh, not only to the internet, but to this particular thing called social media, and in particular, its influence. Uh, Social media leaves nothing uh, of life untouched. Its influence extends to everything from the way we do business, uh, to our politics, to uh, how families function now, and of course, to religion. And about a month ago, I came across an article which had not so much to do with social media's influence on religion, but it was an article about social media as religion, as something like a religion. The the title of the article, maybe you've read it, is called The Empty Religions of Instagram by a woman named Laura Stein. And in it, she describes certain Instagram influencers as those who provide their followers with what she calls an accessible combination of self-care activism, and tongue-in-cheek Christianity in order to help people worship at any time of day or night at the electric church of the Instagram feed. And even though 22% of millennials claim no religious affiliation at all, a number that's growing, she asks a question in the the middle of this article that kind of stopped me in my tracks and I think it's fair to say has sort of haunted me since. And she's speaking as a millennial. She asked this question, but are we truly non-religious or are our belief systems too bespoke to appear on a list of major religions in a Pew phone survey? She describes this customized religion, this customized kind of belief system, at least among she and her peers, as, quote, a blend of left-wing political orthodoxy, intersectional feminism, self-optimization, therapy, wellness, astrology, and Dolly Parton. And along with the convictions, Instagram provides something, she says, like clergy. Clergy in and among personal growth influencers, all right there in the palm of your hand. And yet, for all the access and spiritual customization that that you can get with a swipe of an index finger, she admits it's not enough. She confesses that the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, for humility, and for awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account, she says. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir 
are calling out their enemies on social media for clout. She goes on to say that she longs for the opportunity to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? Facing the reality that instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might be distracting us from them. And she concludes the article wondering out loud if maybe we actually need to go to something like church. So last week or a couple weeks ago, we were at our presbytery meetings in El Paso. I was there with your pastor and, and, and some of your members. And, um, and we had this little panel of pastors and elders that we set up as part of our, this regional meeting of churches to talk about how the pandemic had affected us um, as pastors, how it had affected our congregation. And in the course of that conversation, you can imagine there was a lot to say, but um, it was pointed out that while COVID hasn't created anything, it has done what Laura Stein's describing here. It has cracked open some things in us. It has done the work of exposing things that I think have been there all along. And one of those things that is in us, one of the most fundamental things that's in us, all, is the need for community. Now, we just read from a passage in Acts that is not only descriptive of what the church was in the early days, I think it's also prescriptive. Uh, There's something of a calling being delineated here in this passage, and it's worth noting that this is the first place in the Bible where the church is described. Uh, And it's not described, you know, as catalytic, or culturally relevant, or attractive, or active, or busy, or relevant, or orthodox, or Presbyterian. Um, Not that any of those are bad things, okay? But it is described fundamentally as devoted, uh, which is to say that this is a community uh, that has been acted upon and they are responding in due due course. Their, Their hearts have been melted by Jesus, and that has created in them a love for Jesus which bears fruit in a love for their world and their people, right? And at the core of that devotion uh, is a devotion to the fellowship. A fellowship that we're going to see in this passage was created by God, uh, is cultivated in the gospel, and finally, it becomes contagious uh, in the community to which it's been called, okay? Created, cultivated, contagious. Um, Now, you know, as I look at this passage, I don't know about you, but I look at a, at a word like fellowship, and that is a word that fares poorly for me. Um, if you're a church person, if you've been around the church part of your life or for any amount of time, you know, this, this is the word that's used to describe sort of the time where we drink coffee, usually mediocre coffee in a church, maybe not this one, um, mediocre snacks. We have our fellowship time. Um, you know, maybe it's a room in the church. It's the fellowship hall. Uh, you know, where we do things like that. And if we get really crazy after church or outside of church, we'll, we'll fellowship together. Um, but but the, word, the word this from which we get this word fellowship is in fact, you know, uh, what one scholar said is among the richest, most significant words in the whole Bible. Uh, it's a word you may have heard in sermons. Uh, it's one of these Greek words that pastors use and try to get into the lexicon the word is koinonia, um, 
And what's tricky about it, and I think the reason pastors like me keep trying to teach this word, is it doesn't have a great English equivalent. It, de- it describes more than a collection of people or the act of getting together or putting on events. Um, we're getting closer to it in verse 44 when, when we see that people were sharing everything in common. Um, but, but koinonia describes more than what happens when people share or connect with each other. But fundamentally, koinonia is what results when God connects with us. It's that which he creates. Uh, Koinonia means we're all in this together and one of us is the Lord. C.S. Lewis put it in a great way in in his little essay, The Weight of Glory. He, He says this, he says, we are summoned from the outset to combine as creatures with our creator, as mortals with immortal, redeemed sinners with sinless redeemer, His presence, the interaction between him and us must always be the overwhelmingly dominant factor in the life we are to lead within the body. Any conception of Christian fellowship which does not mean primarily fellowship with him is out of court, according to C.S. Lewis. And that means that the fellowship, the koinonia, isn't, isn't what ensues after we've sufficiently flexed our social skills. It is instead entering into what God has created in in the church. This is how it's described all over the Bible. A good example of it is 1 Corinthians 1.9, where believers aren't described as creating fellowship, but as those who have been called into it, called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul says. Fellowship among us, in other words, is the fruit of of fellowship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the fruit. It's the result of that. In fact, John describes salvation in just these terms in 1 John 1 as having fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The life in Christ that creates fellowship with God is the very one that connects you to fellowship with His people. Uh, One results from the other, and the order can't be reversed. And that is a fact of no small significance. I'd argue that God's creation of fellowship with us and among us is one of the reasons in this passage that awe came upon every soul. It, it is probably among the signs and wonders that they bore witness to. Because God creates koinonia out of the chaos, fellowship among people who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other. In fact, all who believed were together and had thing, all things in common in verse 43 are the very same people among whom existed deep, intense, ongoing, generational enmity. So if, if making a church out of that isn't a miracle, I don't know what a miracle is. Just before this, Luke goes into incredible detail about the gathering that the Lord had brought together and poured out His Holy Spirit on at Pentecost. And he goes, there's, there's this huge long list there, and I'm just going to read it to you, and I don't even think it's the complete list. He says, you know, gathered there were Galileans, Parthians, and Medes, Elamites, and Mesopotamians, Judeans, and Cappadocians, people from Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Romans, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians. Anyone reading that list at this time would have reacted to it and said that is a combustible collection of rivalries 
and separations and suspicions and old grudges and active hatreds, that is a Jerry Springer episode ready to, ready to happen. Chairs are going to get thrown. Punches will be thrown. I was reminded of an article I read, this was years and years ago, right, before they, right as they were forming the European Union, um, and it was exploring this question about whether there was such a thing as a common European identity. Like, you know, so the idea was like, well, they're forming this entity called the European Union, and, and, and once it's formed, will people identify fundamentally, even, you know, like if you're a person from Portugal or Poland, before you're that, you're European. You know, just right, line up the politics and the trade policy, and, and, and we will create a, a new identity, a new unity, right? But in the course of the article, they go to this little village in Italy, and they talk to this little old man, and they ask him the question, you know, um, what do you think about the prospect of identifying as European before, you know, Italian? And the guy thought for a second, and he said, well, let me just put it this way. Everyone in this village hates everyone in the next village. <laughs> That's what I think of your plan for unity, okay? I think Luke describes this gathering in such incredible detail so that we would know that these are people gathered together in the name of Jesus, sharing all things in common, who would never in a million years just get together. And yet they are together. And I think in the, in, in the deepest sense of the word, Luke's favorite word in the book of Acts is together. Um, there's, a lot of the, there's a lot of deep theology in that one concept. And so, you know, it's a little bit, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, get weird. But like, you know, I was trying to think what are some analogs today. You know, it's a little bit like, and, and you know, the right-wingers and the left-wingers, the Republicans and the Democrats, the BLM crew and the MAGA crew, all were together sharing all things in common, delighting in fellowship. There's something like that here and probably more intense than that. And that's a miracle. And that's something that only God can pull off. D.A. Carson, the Bible scholar, speaks of the miracle of fellowship in his little book called Love in Hard Places, where he says this, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has the capacity to create deep togetherness, right? Forming one new people, people from every nation under heaven, as it says in verse 5 in this chapter, where enemies are made friends because we who were God's enemies have been made friends, and not just friends, sons and daughters of God through Christ, brothers and sisters with one another. There is no deeper relation. And that truth about the reconciling power of the gospel in the creation of the church, I think has to function as a test within the church. Like, are we experiencing this dynamic? Are, are, when we show up at church, is there something of a sense of, man, we would otherwise, you know, we're a band of natural enemies except for Jesus' sake. At work, in our lives and relationships, you know, are we seeing that? Are we, are, are we seeing, you know, kind of thinking about, I don't know that I would ever be friends with this person were it not for Jesus. 
And, I, and I'm very thankful for welcoming churches, for hospitable churches. Y- y'all seem to be that kind of church. Uh, I've experienced that this morning. But, but as great as friendliness is, um, friendliness and our social skills make for a pitiful foundation for fellowship. But what if we attained an ongoing deep delight in God's welcome to us in Jesus Christ? What if we were regularly struck by that? Relying on what he has created in the church with the expectation that you know, there will be people in my life that are going to be hard to love, but these are the people God has chosen for me. And they're worth it. Pursuing the call to cultivate that kind of fellowship for his glory and the good of others. Now, I've been a church planter and a pastor and, and I, will, I will admit to you that I have, I have spent no small amount of energy trying to build the fellowship on the strength of my mad social skills and high social IQ. You know, I went through an assessment center with our denomination, I think was a, a ascertaining some of that about me, you know, feeling like, well, he's a, I don't remember all the buzzwords, but, you know, you're a connector, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I, I you know, I've tried to run on those fumes in my life as a pastor, in trying to build churches. And, and you know, I kind of believed in it until I heard about ERP. Now, ERP stands for Estimated Relationship Potential. And, and, and it describes this powerful and proven unconscious phenomenon that kicks in whenever you or I meet someone for the very first time. It's, it's a proven psychological phenomenon that that works in our brains unconsciously, and it basically works like this. Within seconds of meeting someone, we are not only determining the potential of the relationship, we're estimating relationship potential, the estimation that we make generally sticks. The research shows that the verdict we render within just a couple of seconds tends to determine the future of that relationship forever. So if you like what someone's wearing, if you like where they're from, you know, some of you might have heard a minute ago, I'm from Texas. That may, have, that may have been a good thing. That may have been a very bad thing. I don't know. But, you know, you render the verdict. So if you like where they're from or, or you know, the, the, or, or what they're wearing or their, the degree of wokeness that they possess, you know, you've decided they're worthy of you. You know, and, 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 and on the flip side, if, if you don't like the way they make eye contact or what they do for a living or how they vote, you know, then, then you decide pretty quickly you're, they're, they're unworthy of you. But, but the glory of the gospel is that it overturns the ERP verdicts that we so hastily render in the courtrooms of our crooked little hearts right? by reminding us that the just verdict that was rendered on us was graciously overturned that God was gracious to create fellowship through Jesus Christ where all we were doing was destroying it. This is the power of new life in Christ at work in us and among us so that there's always room for more people in my life so that we can can set aside the exhausting task of curating our friendships and begin enjoying the people that God chooses for me, even if it's challenging and you know, again, we ought to regularly be st- struck with that beautiful thought of the only reason I'm even in the same room with this person is because of Jesus. It turns out that this statement in verse 44 
that all who believed were together, I think is more profound than we, than we realize at first because this is, again, togetherness in its richest sense, not just being in the same place at the same time, but deeply together, deeply delighting in the gospel with lives woven together by the grace of Jesus. I mean, some of you may know, you know, there's, there are a few things more painful than being with someone but not really with them, right? That's painful. I mean, if you're sitting with someone and they're checking their watch and they're looking around and they're, they're responding to every sentence you say with just sort of the perfunctory, reflexive, uh-huh, but you know they're not listening, that is painful. That is, you know, that's untogether togetherness. And it, and, and it can really run rampant in churches. But God is gracious through the gospel to give us more than gatherings. He gives us gospel togetherness unity and love for one another deeply from the heart because of what Jesus has wrought in the heart. There's all kinds of metaphors for the church in the Bible, but I think the two that loom largest uh, kind of convey the, the togetherness in view here from Luke. The first is the church as a family or as a household. And you, know, you think about that, well, it's a family, it's a group of related people. Uh, people who share such a deep relation that all of life is shared. You eat together, you live together, you work together, you play together, you plan together, you've seen each other in your underwear, you know? You speak to each other more personally and intimately and lovingly than you would with those not in a family, and, and at the same time, more directly and honestly and pointedly than you might with those who aren't in your family. You don't worry about getting into people's business because it's your business and you allow them to get into your business because you know it's theirs. And, you know, you can leave your family. You can curse them. You can change your name. You can declare you, you don't want anything to do with them ever again, but, but the reality is they're always your family, for good or for ill, right? Another metaphor for the church is that of the human body. This is, this is the one we're really tapping into when you talk about church membership. Um, Member is, is, is an English word that derives from, a, from, from an older word that mean, means just the limb of a body. Uh, limbs and body parts only function when they're joined with a body comprised of wildly different members than itself, right? Joined in integral, intimate ways with healthy connections in every way and bone and tissue and nerves and blood vessels so that the circulatory system is giving life to all and it forms this greater functioning hold. So God uses church membership, I think, as this delivery system of the deep grace by which we're able to cultivate what's in view here, this koinonia that he's created, with, created among us, not spurning the gift, but making the most of it so that what's created at one and the same time is interdependency among us and deep dependency on the Lord as our head from whom we have no, apart from whom we have no life. So, you know, it turns out that membership is something like the opposite of the contemporary understanding of membership, where you join something and, and you know, you've joined an entity that's a lot like you. Like when I was a kid doing 4-H, I was a member of the American Dairy Goat Association. And guess what? I was joined up with a bunch of people who were exactly like me. You know, we were all these knucklehead kids wearing Wranglers and trying to learn how to dip Copenhagen, and we all owned dairy goats, right? 
But while we might choose our friends and form our clubs, God, again, chooses our family and creates the fellowship. He integrates us into deep dependence on him, deep interdependence that comes along with being a member of the body, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 12. And I'd, I'd encourage you to go this afternoon and read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. That is a unity sandwich with love in the middle, right? 1 Corinthians 13. But he calls it in 1 Corinthians 12, one body with many members, so that all the members of the body, though many, are one body. And when we embrace that gift by taking the substantial step of becoming a member of a church, we learn, I think, at least two really fundamental electrifying truths. I'm incomplete apart from his body, and others are absolutely essential to my life. So the gospel works into us a growing sense of need for his church while at the same time deepening my love for and dependence on others in his church. And that is, that's not to say it's easy. Family can be hard. It can be intense. I mean, I've got a brother who can, you know, I'm 49 years old. My brother can send me in a millisecond back to fourth grade, maturity level-wise, <laughs> like that. So it can be intense. And I do the same to him. But the gospel itself contains all the resources we need. We can pursue people we might otherwise walk away from because we remember God pursued us and never walked away. We're able to love people who may be hard to love because we remember how deeply unlovable we were, and yet he loved us. We're able to reconcile with people who, have, who may have really wronged us because we've received the ultimate and the gracious reconciliation of Jesus which gave us life. Those things become precious to us and they become pursuits. Richard Mao made the observation once that since every person is made in the image of God, every person's a work of art and therefore the work of relationship is fundamentally uh, a task in art appreciation. You know, and so what that means is that with people, you can expect a range of experiences in getting to know them. And you know, I. One of the things I've loved about living in Santa Fe and this, this whole part of the world is, you know, the, the presence of the art world and I've been in a few galleries and, you know, I'll go around a corner and sometimes I'll see a painting or something and it's like, it's kind of like it just feeds your soul. You could just stand there and be with it all day and there's people like that. But then there's other works of art where you come around a corner and you just go, I don't get it. I, I need, you know, I need, I need someone to explain it to me. I need to look harder. I need to spend more time with it. You know, and I, I need to understand the craft and the thought and the, and the beauty that's yet to be discovered that I'm not seeing right now. It's an, it's an exercise in art appreciation, relationships. And yet we all know the pain of being together without being together, isolating ourselves and alienating ourselves. I think we do this far more easily and far more instinctively than we want to admit, at least I do. John Steinbeck wrote an essay in 1930 called In Awe of Words, and he, he made this observation. We are lonesome animals. We spend all our life trying to be less lonesome. One of our ancient methods is to tell, the tell a story begging the listener to say and to feel, yes, that's the way it is, or at least that's the way I feel it. You're not alone as you thought. It seems to me that the thing we are most terrified of is also the thing that we long for the most, and that is to be known, to know that we're not alone. 
At the heart of the good news of Jesus is finding that we can be known and never rejected, known right to the bottom of who we are, embraced and brought in and loved, and that can be a gift to others. If you've been around Christian circles, you're probably accustomed to hearing this phrase, having a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's an appropriate, biblically-derived phrase and understanding, but, but it, it's, it's about half the story. Because what's urged upon us with every bit as much force in the Bible is what you might call a social relationship with Jesus. And that's because of the nature of the gospel itself, that we worship a relational God who enjoys relationship within his own triune self and longs to grow that relationship out of his self by seeking others for the sake of reconciliation and relationship between him and us. And the gospel just creates that. And it cultivates it because it is, by its nature, the antidote to alienation, loneliness, and rejection. And this is why there is literally no category in the Bible for the non-congregating Christian. Because that is a contradiction to what it means to be a Christian. It is as much a contradiction as saying, you know, the waterless fish. You see, it's vital that we consider not only what we're getting out of fellowship for ourselves, but also what we're giving to it or what we're denying others in the community to which God has called us. And that gets to the last part of this passage, is that the fellowship of believers isn't just for us. It's for the community. It's for, it's for Albuquerque. It's for the world. Christian fellowship in that way, I think, functions something like a sacrament. It's a sign that points away to itself that that puts this big neon sign out there in the world that says, look what God is doing now here in this place is something that is a sign and a wonder. It's that which has the capacity to strike awe in the people who see something that they're not seeing anywhere else. That God is gracious through the power of the gospel to heal the isolation and the alienation and the enmity and the division, giving us new life and with it a whole new way to live. The fellowship, the body of Christ, is living proof that there can be new life in this life. That that starts now. And and Luke actually describes how radically different this life is in verses 44 and 45 when he tells us that all who believed together and had all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And, And it might not surprise you to know that there is no interpretive no shortage of interpretive gymnastics, you know, that get applied to this passage, mostly to the end that it wouldn't be as radical as it seems. You know, but there's no getting around the fact that this is radical stuff, and it may be, may be, may be most radical to people like us, 21st century Americans. And, you know, it's, and I want to say it's not, it's not about some economic philosophy. I mean, at least that's not the main thing. But it is about this. I think it's about the extent to which the power of the resurrection penetrates my life and the community to which I've been called. You know, pressing home the critical question about life in the community. Am I hanging on to this life? Am I hoarding this life? Am I treating this life as mine, all mine? Or am I living it as a Christian who knows it's been given to me as a gift by grace to be shared? Is the gospel reordering things? Is it shaking up my usual arrangements, my material arrangements, my social arrangements? Am I able to identify tangible ways in which the gospel of Jesus Christ has really moved me, not just in my heart, 
but from my heart into the community to which I've been called. To the end that, you know, it, it, it is unsettling. To the end that it's specific. To the end that it's substantial. To the glory of God and the good of others. And, and I, can't, I can't stand here and tell you exactly what that's, that may look like in your life. Um, I, I, don't, I don't even know that I should. I can only ask myself and you along with me, when was the last time things became unsettling, substantial, and specific because of the gospel in my life? When was the last time I denied myself in, other, in, in order that others might enjoy it? How has the generosity of God toward me in any way disrupted my lifestyle for the good of others? In what ways is the good news of Jesus Christ doing the gracious work of reorienting me, of redefining the way I relate to people who aren't like me? You see, what Luke describes in Acts 2, he details in this really personal way in Luke 19, in a famous story about Zacchaeus. What uh, we, you know, those of us who grew up in the church, the person we know is the wee little man, Zacchaeus, and how he came to life in Jesus. And it's really worth going back and reading that because that is a story not just of this particular character of Zacchaeus, it's a story of his community, of of the one he had done damage to, of the one he was despised in because it was his own dang fault to the harm of others. And yet, he was sought out by Jesus. He was given grace. He came to faith. And then everything was turned upside down. He was moved to repentance. And it reordered everything not only in his life, but it reordered the community to the good of the community so that there was fruit in keeping with repentance and doing all he could with his life and resources to bring healing and wholeness to this community he'd been destroying up till then. And here Luke's telling that, really that same story um, of an entire community doing the same thing so that everything that was once held tightly as essential to my life is set free because they've been set free. And that changed life, that changed community, made their fellowship contagious. It became dynamic. It became growing. It was highly porous, easy to get into. It was not only porous, it was absorbent. It was pulling people in. That's what he's describing and saying that the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Uh, He's not just telling us there that God grew his church. He's telling us how God grew his church, through the gospel, through the fellowship, by being together for worship, by inviting people along, by always making new friends, by gathering in homes, by sharing meals, by having really great parties, by going out in Albuquerque and connecting with people where they live, by showing a generosity of spirit and room in your life. And that's why I think the fellowship has to be so central to the vision of the church because the gospel is central and it must be shared so that the fellowship God has created grows in number day by day. So maybe, you know, maybe we can come to church, and, and of course, you guys have a lot of friendships here, and you're thinking about who you're going to see, but maybe there can also be right alongside that, you know, thinking not so much about who's here, but who's not here, and why it's a shame they're not here. Why you're, you know, why it's a shame your unbelieving friend isn't here. You can begin to pray for that, those people, specifically praying that it would be our delight to not only share the gospel, but our lives as well. Let me pray. Ah, Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful to know that you are at work. Um, 
the last thing we want to leave here with is marching orders for how you know we have to pull this off. We already know um, we're inadequate to, for the task, but we know that in the same breath that you are wholly sufficient for it, and in fact, you are lavish in it. And so, Lord, would you be at work in our hearts, and would you pour out the Spirit? Lord, I thank you that there is no surer promise in Scripture than that you will give the Spirit to those who ask. And so we pray, give us the Spirit. Lord, I pray, you know, even in some specific ways, that this week there would be three or four people on our hearts that, we would, that you would prompt us to pray for, people who don't know you, people who, you know, it seems once knew you but walked away, Lord, people um, that we've got grudges against, people that, uh, you know, we, we've got some history with, and, and when we think of their names, we wince and think that can never be repaired. Lord, would you make a way? Would you move us to repentance, not only to you, but maybe to others? Um, Lord, would you open our homes? Would you give us the grace as you gave this church to share everything, realizing none of it's ours, because everything we have is just a little tiny drop compared to the lavishness and the life that we have been given in Christ Jesus, which is ours for eternity. So Lord, attend to us as we come to this table. We thank you that this table is fundamentally a table of fellowship. It's a table in which you've invited us to fellowship with you. And Jesus, we're mindful that you, when you gave it to your disciples, looked forward to the day where we would sit at your table, where sin would be no more, where every tear would be dried, where we would eat on the richest affair with our king, joyous and full, probably still struck with awe that you have sought us out and given us such an abundant life. Lord, attend to us as we come. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.